Welcome to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers focused on giving you the information necessary to navigate the divorce process without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Send us your questions or comments to lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com and find us online at divorcedanddone.com. Let's get into the podcast. Welcome back to Divorced and Done on this Tuesday morning. This week, we're taking more of your questions and addressing your concerns, moving them into the Divorced and Done process. Darren Schmidt, how are you? Rob, I'm good. Uh, I spent the day, actually last couple of days, um, dealing with uh, a film crew outside of my office. Uh, Holy smokes. There's a a Hallmark movie being filmed on Main Street here in Vernon, British Columbia. It is, uh, from what I understand, a Christmas-themed Hallmark movie. I'm not too familiar with the Hallmark Christmas movies, although I understand they're popular, but there's a full-on production going on outside of our office. So there's like Christmas displays. It's bizarre. And the contrast is is pretty bizarre because, of course, there's forest fires going on in the Holy midst of smokes. a heat wave out here in BC. But uh, the Hallmark uh, film crew is out doing their filming. They're asking for extras. You just got to come down and wear your winter coat. <laughs> so <laughs> middle of summer. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm tangentially aware of some of these Hallmark movies, Christmas movies. I mean, they're like like the Christmas Prince and. Single person finds the magic of Christmas and love. So is this going to be like Santa gets a divorce and you kick through the door and you're there as Santa's lawyer? Uh, they I haven't quite so. approached me for that plot yet, but I'm all ears. Hallmark, if you're listening, let's uh, let's get that going. Uh, no, but it's been kind of neat to see the film set. But all, all this Christmas talk got me thinking, what do you think the highest ranked Billboard Christmas song of all time was? So, Rob, uh, what do you think it was? Uh, Mariah Carey's Christmas song. Really? All, all I Want for Christmas is You. That song exclusively. I, I would actually put real money on this. Or or to hedge my bet because you're making a face. Uh, so everyone knows when we record this, we have video. Uh, Bing Crosby, White Christmas. Those, those two. There we go. All right. That was bold. And... I got to give you props. You were bang on. Number one song all time. All I want for Christmas is you, Mariah yep. Carey. Yep. I, okay. Uh, this, uh, the Billboard website says. Um, so everyone knows we didn't prep this. That was this, this Darren sold asking me that. No, that I didn't. I didn't tell. I didn't forecast this for you at all. You nailed that. Uh, White Christmas from Bing Crosby is on the list. Number nine. Uh, okay. So both of those extremely successful uh, Christmas songs, but I don't know, it's kind of weird seeing Christmas in Main Street, middle of August. But yeah, all I want Are for Christmas is Are they blasting the Mariah Carey for you when you go to work <laughs> or anything else? They are not, um, but uh, like Mariah Carey and that all she wants for Christmas is you, our listeners probably want us to answer some listener questions. So with that... 
I will uh, transition with our handy dandy listener sound that uh, we use when we transition to listener questions each week. That's right. Uh, we've decided to keep the cowbell for season two because our budget hasn't increased. So you're stuck with that. But, All I uh, want for Christmas is cowbell. <laughs> We uh, we would love to get your questions. We have a number of them in the queue. We'll get through a couple of them today, uh, but send them into us. Lawyers talking about divorce at gmail dot com. That's lawyers plural talking about divorce at gmail dot com. Check out our website, divorced and done a n d done dot com. So the first question is about four questions condensed in one. Of course, uh, before I leap into this, any questions you send us will maintain your anonymity. We don't reveal who you are. Uh, first question, lawyer says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Thanks to you for listening. And then we're glad that you love the podcast. First sub question, in shared parenting or 50-50 parenting time, how is the time determined if one parent works less than the other? Is it the percentage of the child's time? Listener then says, for example, if my ex has the kids two nights a week and they are at daycare those days as we both work, but I have them day and night on the other five days because we don't have children in daycare those days, is that factored into parenting time? Like, is this considered 40% because he has them two nights a week or all hours considered? I think, Rob, the question here is if the children are either at school during a daytime or a daycare uh, during day, in this case, the listeners' uh, children are in daycare for a portion of the week. How do we determine whose hours those are for the purpose of coming up with the amount of uh, parenting time each parent has? So uh, what do you think? I'd say simply it's the custodial care, who's taking the children to school or daycare and who's picking them up. Uh, if it's during dad's uninterrupted parenting time, his portion of the week, I'd credit that to him. If it's mom's parenting time, I'd credit it to her. If one parent's doing the drop-off and the other's doing the pickup for the remainder of the day, that's a split day. What's your view? Yeah. So I think there's a bunch of uh, technical case law in this. This is not a technical case law podcast. What this listener is dealing with is a, on this question, which is a step two um, problem, what's the parenting arrangement? Step one, of course, is living separate and apart under our divorced and done process. Step two is figuring out the parenting time. Looks like they've done that. So they've figured out what the parenting time is. Um, but she's trying to, this listener, figure out um, what it is for the for likely child support purposes because once you get to a shared parenting arrangement, that will have an impact on child support. My view on whose time is it with the children, despite them being with a third party, like a school or daycare, um, who dropped them off and then who is picking them up. So if a parent has a child and drops them off at school and the other parent then picks them up later that day, I would say it's split probably between the, the day roughly equally. I don't think there's a, there's a hard and fast rule on that. Um, but there's not hours lost. I think the, the gist is it's not hours lost because they're with a third party. I think it just logically slots in some way, somehow. And if there's questions about it, it's probably a silly question to litigate. I have seen it litigated, but um, really, if one parent has the children in their care 40% of the time, uh, let's not nitpick where the children might be in daycare at certain points. If you're close to that 40%, let's just say it's a, it's a shared parenting arrangement. I think that's the easiest way to get divorced and done. But 
Just my thinking. Uh, the sub question two. If one parent moves away, who is responsible for driving for parenting time? Uh, if both parents agree to meet halfway and then one parent changes their mind on meeting, but is the primary parent and not the one who moved, is this allowed? So the gist of this question, if one parent moves, we don't know how far, it's sort of hypothetical, who is responsible for what what happens in terms of exchange of the children in light of the move? So uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? So I'm going to imagine, since this move has already happened, there's no issue uh, between the parent that's moved and the parent that stayed uh, in the previous locale. That is, they don't have a fight about where the children are going to live or where they're going to school. This is purely a who's going to drive, who's going to pick up, who's going to drop off. In a perfect world, uh, everyone would be reasonable and try and split that duty. Uh, someone's going to do pickups. Someone's going to do the drop-off or they'll split that difference. From the listener's question, it sounds like they'd historically been splitting that difference and someone's now decided they no longer want to do that drive. In my view, uh, I've had this in court a few times. Courts will generally try really hard to get people to share that burden, whether it's one person driving one way, the other person driving the other way, or parties equally sharing the entire burden. One week, someone does all the driving. The next week, someone else does all the driving. We really don't want one parent to have to shoulder that burden alone unless there's some really excellent opportunity or uh, excellent reason for that to occur. I can't really think of one unless someone just doesn't have a car, can't afford it, um, those sorts of pieces. But people just saying, I'm tired of doing it. It's taking too long. I don't like it. I don't want to spend the money on gas. Courts don't really have a lot of sympathy for that. And thinking about our divorced and done steps, as we've acknowledged before, just because we're moving through a six-step model doesn't necessarily mean that you won't end up in court for something. But if you do end up in court for something, make sure it's a really important issue. And don't get tripped up on things like who's doing pickups, Who's doing drop-offs? Are we at the perfect 40% shared parenting regime? Or can I move this two or three percentage points one way or the other and get this spectacularly in my favor? Because the moment you start splaying hairs and doing those things, you're no longer in a divorced and done model. Because the divorced and done model is totally premised on finding agreement, not sweating the small stuff, and getting you through to live your life. If you're arguing about pickups and drop-offs, what else are you arguing about? <laughs> this isn't... Uh... This is divorced and done. This isn't litigate in hell. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you and I have both done those applications oh, yeah. where, yes, of course we care about our clients. Of course we care about your legal arguments. Yes. But sometimes in the back of our heads, it's like, holy smokes, you guys. Uh, we're here fighting about, uh, you know, pickups, drop-offs, school locations, other things that objectively, and you really have to think about how this looks to a judge, is this that serious? Their time is limited, and everyone's time is really valuable. If you're taking something to court, really make sure it's worth it. Make sure it's a linchpin issue that's stopping you from getting divorced and done. If it's something you can let go, be the bigger person. Let it go. Bingo. I would agree 100%. I think your earlier comment about, you know, judges and chambers applications on these things, I've seen it almost exclusively, the judge finding a halfway point. I used to practice in Lethbridge. Parents that were moving from Calgary to Lethbridge about two hours 
they would almost always find that exchange point in Nanton. Uh, these are locations Rob and I are well familiar with. Maybe our listeners across Canada, North America are not, but it's about halfway. Between it's a midpoint. Yeah, it's a Absolutely. midpoint. There's a McDonald's the there. You can get a coffee, have a McMuffin. It's a nice time. Yep, yep. yep. 100%. So, um, yeah, don't get hung up on it if you don't have to. Uh, Sub-question three of this listener's email. Uh, what is the starting process to buy out an ex-spouse for a jointly owned home? Do I start by getting a value estimate of the house or applying for my own mortgage? Uh, Rob, what do you think? Absolutely. Number one, um, get an appraisal on the home um, to determine what it's worth. Because in any process where one person's going to buy someone else uh, out of the home, while you may have an agreement for a certain value down the road, generally both lawyers are going to be pushing for an objective value as possible so that it's fair to both parties and everyone needs to be aware of the objective value. Once that's happened uh, and you're aware of the expense and buying somebody else out, then you can think about financing and those other pieces. The other big thing to think about is, is the other person going to agree to it? Is this something you can reasonably do? And are you at the right step in the divorced and done process to be yeah. thinking about this? Because this is a sub-question. We've just had two, what I would suggest, um, potentially problematic questions on what we would view are minor issues around parenting. Parenting is step two. Solve your parenting in the second step. We're not talking about property until step four. Solve the parenting pieces first. Someone's just moved. Figure out where you're both going to be long-term. Then once you've done that, once you've solved child support, because before you even think about buying a home, assuming a dad is the payor of child support, make sure that mortgage payment can fit in with your child support obligation. I love it. I love that you said this is a step four problem because it is a step four problem. And if I understand the theme of the first two sub-questions of this uh, email, it's that we have some parenting issues. We have some things to work out on parenting. Maybe they're not monumental issues, but those things need to be worked out. So deal with those first. In terms of dealing with your house, yep, get it appraised. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and once it's appraised, um, you're not going to be immediately approved for a mortgage because typically lenders are going to want a fully executed separation agreement in hand or divorce judgment in hand before they're going to approve financing. So this may be one of those where you want to consider selling the house, but put that in the back of your mind because that's step four. Moving on to the fourth sub question in this email, uh, the listener asks, once I've retained a lawyer, what can I expect next? She says, I met with a great lawyer in Alberta. Maybe, hey, maybe, Rob, maybe she met with you. There you go. Uh, but uh, I'm worried. She doesn't say that, by, by the way, by any stretch. I was joking. But uh, but I'm worried my spouse will not do a collaborative process and that my lawyer can't do litigation for me if we try collaborative law first. So does he or she initially send some sort of letter to them? Uh, or do we just draft up a separation agreement? Basically, how do we kick off the process? Um and uh, in, in terms of selecting a lawyer, what do I need to think about? So, uh, Rob, uh, what are your thoughts? Great question. So my view in selecting a lawyer, uh, and we've addressed this previously, getting divorced is on average a 6th to 18-month process if things are going well. And if you're in litigation, it can necessarily be longer. 
So make sure the lawyer you've selected is someone you can work with for a long time and someone you're comfortable sharing everything with, speaking with. And you're going to probably hear things from that lawyer in the course of your relationship you may not necessarily like or may not be what you expected. But make sure you value that person's opinion and you value their professional opinion. And what they're telling you is likely the best advice for you uh, to think about how you want to move forward. In terms of first steps, uh, and it sounds like she wants to have some sort of collaborative process, which suggests to me that the other side is not immediately hostile. There's no urgent issues around parenting or anything else. So my view would be what I like to do in those sorts of situations. I like to start with a letter to the other party. If if we don't know whether there's a lawyer on the other side, uh, or if there is a lawyer on the other side, say, hey, I've just been retained by this person. What we'd like to do is a first step. We understand sort of this is the parenting arrangement. This is what's going on. We'd like to think about moving toward resolution, whether it's a formal collaborative process, mediation, arbitration, whatever you decide. We propose we'd like to mutually exchange financial disclosure so we can see everything that's there. Please give me an opportunity. I would say this to the other lawyer, either when we can connect or if that person doesn't have a lawyer, I'd say, Please let us know within one month of today's letter whether you're going to retain a lawyer or not, and then we can talk about next steps. I think if you can find a lawyer that will, that sort of is in line with the divorced and done process, because you're listening to this, what we mean is they don't need to necessarily follow our six steps. Um, but someone that is focused on getting you from point A to point B, if that's actually what you want, point A to point B without losing your mind or your wallet. And, and they're not interested in a boutique custom made solution for you. Because when, when I hear that, what I hear is cost. Okay. It's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, and number two is they're not, they don't see this for really what it is. It's, this is a, how do we get you from point A to divorced as soon as we can for the least amount of cost. Because if you want to have niche fights, unique battles, you want to think about the past and you want to go after, I see this all the time on TikTok, people that are hung up on this term narcissist. If if those are the things uh, that your lawyer is interested in pursuing or wants to be a cheerleader for you in pursuing those issues, you would do well to have a lawyer that says, maybe those aren't issues worth pursuing, as you previously have said, as part of a prior sub-question in this email, Rob, if you're going to go to court, don't make it about stupid stuff. Make sure it's an important issue that is worthy of the court's time and worthy of your resources, your money, because likely you don't have a war chest sitting there to run the $200,000 divorce. Maybe you do, um, but it's not fun. It's even not fun, fun from a lawyer's perspective to collect that much in legal fees from a client going through a divorce because I did it once. And it was actually quite stressful. So um, I would say find a lawyer that buys into the, the concept of how do we get divorced and done and not pursuing unique and interesting and boutique. Hopefully that helps. Thank you for those four uh, little questions in that email. And uh, hopefully that helps. All right, let's move on to our second question. This one has some um, uh, touchy uh, difficult components to it. So just as a warning to our listeners, um, 
the listener says, uh, hello, uh, this isn't actually a divorce, but unfortunately, uh, my 24-year-old daughter was killed by a drunk driver five months ago. Do I have rights as a grandparent to get joint custody of my granddaughter? The father wasn't involved prior to her passing, and he now, as uh, the surviving guardian, has her, and he isn't allowing us to see the granddaughter, my granddaughter. She says us, I'm guessing her and her husband or partner. Uh, my granddaughter is also biracial, and uh, I feel she deserves to know her heritage and where she came from. Uh, the most important factor is the only way she'll know her mother is through us. Um, the uh, her daughter and the and the father of this child didn't date very long, and and his family, from this listener's perspective, uh, hasn't been very close with the listener's daughter. Uh, and that's where the listener leaves it. So obviously extremely sad uh, circumstances and our thoughts go out to the listener and they're very courageous to send the question in to us. Um, Rob, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Our condolences um, to the grandparent uh, for sending in that question. Wonderful that they still want to be involved uh, in their grandchildren's life or grandchild's life. Um, a very briefly in Alberta under our family law act, it is unlikely that a grandparent would get joint guardianship with a surviving, um, partner for someone else's child. However, there are provisions under that legislation that would allow for specific grandparents visitation access, uh, to be able to have some time with a grandchild on a regular basis because it's been denied um, by the former partner of your daughter. So that would be my suggestion where that goes. If, for example, there were safety concerns with dad or he's perhaps not the best parent and if CFS or a child services, child protective services were to get involved, they may look to you for more involvement, but we don't know enough from the question to know whether that's a live factor. So assuming this is just one parent that's denied um, grandparents access in light of the death of their child, I think a grandparent access application would be appropriate. I agree. I think you mentioned off the top uh, the, the assignment of guardianship powers to a grandparent is, is a high hurdle. And I would absolutely agree. It's unlikely a court, whether in Alberta, British Columbia, where I practice, or any province in Canada would or territory would um, uh, would readily grant a guardianship to uh, a surviving grandparent. It's not to say it can't be done, um, but that certainly wouldn't be the presumption. And of course, as a guardian you would have uh, joint decision-making powers with the other surviving guardian, in this case, the um, uh, the granddaughter's father. So, um, you know, and a court would have to consider on that issue whether assigning another guardian would be in the child's best interest because now you and the biological father, the listener and the biological father, would have joint decision-making power over what, school that child goes to and the religious upbringing of the child and medical decision makings for the child and things of that nature. Um, and, and that's, 
likely not appropriate because it's going to lead to other fights down the road. Um, like you say, Rob, if there's serious concerns about the biological father's ability to care for the child, uh, involving as a first step, either number one, the police, if there's immediate safety concerns or number two, a child protective services agency in your jurisdiction, that's, as you've already said, the appropriate first step in that regard. Um, but as for your comments about, I think grandparent, grandparents visitation time, what I would call contact time, um, that's specifically contemplated now in our amended divorce act for married couples. Um, I'm not certain. It doesn't appear these uh, the biological parents were married. Looks like they just dated for a brief brief time. Um, but in the provincial family law legislation, wherever you reside, would allow for something like a contact time order, and that would probably get you what you're looking for, which is I want I want some specified time, either on a weekly basis or a couple times a month, or maybe more frequent or less frequent. Um, before filing something in court, my suggestion would be that you make either through a lawyer or yourself good faith efforts to broach that topic with the biological father to see if something can be done by consent without involving the courts. But if he's either non-responsive to that or he um, doesn't uh, agree with your suggestion on having contact time, you'd be left with no other option but to file something in court for contact time. I hope it doesn't come to that. And I hope, um, I think I speak for both of us, uh, Rob, where we hope you're able to move through this extremely challenging circumstance with the least amount of conflict moving forward. Absolutely. We wish her well. Let's move on to our third listener question. Uh, the listener asks, uh, if a mother is stating that her 12-year-old child does not want to visit her dad, can she keep the daughter from the father? Uh, the child in this case has texted that she did not state this. Um, can this be used in court against her? Currently, there's no custody agreement between the two parents or parenting or I guess parenting time agreement between the two parents. And for the past three months, the mother has only allowed the child to visit with uh, the father on three visits. Um, so I'm not sure if this is the listener's instant problem or it's a friend or family member that she's asking the question on behalf of, but it appears the child has texted the father or someone else through a text message that she has denied not wanting to see the father. But despite this, the mother is not allowing visits on the premise that they're, that the daughter doesn't want to see the father and the child is 12 years old. So... Uh, all that said, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? Well, these folks are squarely a stage two problem in the divorced and done process, in yeah. the parenting process. Uh, so depending on whether you were common law or whether you're married, however many issues you have left to resolve, there's still potentially a lengthy road in front of you. In determining best interests of the children, because that is the test for determining parenting time, particularly where there's no parenting order in place. So we can't go back historically and say, what does the court put in place? It's good to know that dad's had some parenting time in the last three months, but it sounds like perhaps that may have been dictated more by mom and maybe there wasn't a whole lot of input from dad. And more concerningly, we don't necessarily know what the child wants in this space. So 
pursuant to our Divorce Act and most family law legislation, there is an obligation to consider views and preferences of the child. And there's a few different ways that can happen. That can come through uh, appointment of experts, psychologists, or uh, even lawyers for children to consider what the views of the children are. Um, And court workers even, or even judges directly, can speak to children and say, what do you want to do? From the facts the listener's given us, it's not totally clear how much of a conflict these people are in. This question around one text message seems a little bit unusual. From the information that the listener has given us, I would not say it's enough to withhold parenting, but at the same time, it's also not clear they even have a parenting schedule. So in this situation, if I was dad, um, I'd be seeking, number one, more parenting time, pending a report, or pending more involvement. Um, But even then, if there are no serious concerns, and mom has not raised serious concerns about dad's ability to parent, and this is simply saying, well, our child is now 12, and the child no longer wants to see dad, that's not enough for a court. And that may not even be enough to trigger uh, an expert report or involvement of counsel for children to get that further information from a child. There may be really good grounds for stepping up dad's parenting time, but we don't know in this situation. So I think there's really two ways it could go. Number one, unless there's some compelling reason why not, dad should probably make an application for more parenting time, or at least consistent parenting time. And number two, if the views of the child here are really in question and neither party has a clear idea of what the child wants to do, there are avenues to having the child's voice heard in this, either through some sort of expert report, be it a psychologist, a court worker, whomever, uh, or directly appointing counsel for children and allowing that child to have their own lawyer and voice in the process. But in my view, uh, and you and I have both been counsel for children before, that's a really... It is more readily available, I know, in Alberta than it is in BC, but that's still a special remedy. And courts don't generally appoint counsel for children right off the top. And because these folks may only be three months into it, dad's had inconsistent parenting time. A court may first put a interim order in place with some consistent parenting time for dad. If these problems still continue, communication issues with the child, then maybe we can look to more enhanced options to hear the voice of the child. I would, um, if I was the father in this case, or I was counseling the father in this case, what I would say is a great first step, just as a simple solution to get the ball rolling is to communicate with the mother, the ex uh, in this case and say, I'm concerned that our daughter doesn't want to see me. Um, That's obviously not natural. That's not normal Uh, to go three months with very limited contact. What I'd like to do is I'd like to get our daughter into counseling and I'll pay for it unless there's a benefits plan or both parties have a benefits plan that, that that can be covered. I would take those steps to say, before going to court, let's take that practical step. Let's get this uh, young girl into counseling to see if those issues can be worked out. You'll know quickly after a couple counseling sessions whether or not the uh, alleged um, apprehensions on behalf of the daughter are substantiated or not, because the counselor will will likely report back to both parents, either everything's hunky-dory and she wants to see her dad, 
uh, which should be the gateway to opening up more parenting time without the necessity of court and certainly paying for a handful or or possibly more of counseling sessions is a lot cheaper than hiring a lawyer to bring an application. So I would start there. I would see as a good faith gesture, can we get the daughter into counseling and have that counselor report back to the parents to see what the problem is. If at that point, maybe the problem's a little more complex, then I would maybe consider bringing an application. Now, obviously, if mom doesn't consent to having the counseling done, it's not something you can unilaterally just do. Um, so if that doesn't work, then you're left with probably no other option but to bring an application in court to have a parenting order made. And I would be surprised if there wasn't some regular parenting schedule implemented on a first appearance in court or whatever, uh, second appearance if it's adjourned or, or, or the, the first time a court takes a substantive look at this, that some regular parenting schedule would be imposed likely not significantly more than the parenting time that's already occurred because the role of the court at that instance would be to preserve the status quo. But this is a step two issue. We got to figure out what the parenting arrangement is right now. Everything's up in the air because there's allegations that the 12 year old doesn't want to see her father. How do we deal with that? Well, let's try and stay out of court if we can. So how can we help the 12 year old? What's a child focused solution? I think it's getting that child into counseling so that that child can work through her feelings and emotions and concerns with a third party that isn't her mother or her father, who may be an echo chamber for that child or you know something of that nature. Let's have, a, let's have an appropriate third party really meet with that child to work through those issues. That would be my thoughts around that. So I think, Rob, we've... Uh, We've really tackled some tough questions here today. I think we should leave it at that for this episode. We do have some more in the queue. We will get to them as they come forward, but continue to send them to us. Lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, Darren Schmidt, thank you so much for being here. I hope everyone has a great weekend. As always, you can find us online at divorcedanddone.com. This is Divorced and Done. We look forward to being with you again. <laughs>